BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You look at a map of the Middle East right now, and conflicts have broken out all over. Of course, there is the Israeli military's continuing and punishing campaign in Gaza. But there are skirmishes on the Israel-Lebanon border with Hezbollah fighters. There are the attacks by Houthis in Yemen, the country just south of Saudi Arabia. The violence has inflamed conflicts inside Iraq, Iran, and Syria. And the fighting isn't only between individual non-state actors and national militaries, but also driven by the regional powers like Iran and Saudi Arabia and U.S. forces deployed all over the place. We'll learn about the widening of the conflict and the chances for peace after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Gaza's smaller in area than the city of San Jose. But the intensity of the Israeli military campaign and the deep history of the conflict have made it the center of what could become, or perhaps already is, a regional war. Conflicts that have independently waxed and waned between Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen and Saudi Arabia, as well as between Hezbollah and Israel on the latter country's northern border, are all escalating. Other major recent conflicts lie just on the edges of this widening one. Ethiopia's civil war, Somalia's battle against Islamist militants, the tragedies of Sudan. And there are a dizzying array of alliances and military operations being executed by different groups in Iran, Iraq, and Syria, backed by regional powers, as well as the United States and Russia. It can be hard to understand the histories and goals of all the different organizations, including different U.S. administrations that have been involved. But we'll work through them this morning because there's just so much at stake. As Robin Wright concludes in an essay in The New Yorker, for all the recent punditry warning about a widening war, the trajectory has long been obvious. And for all the American warships, troops, and diplomats deployed in the Middle East over the past hundred days, the U.S. has produced little, if anything beyond greater vulnerabilities. We're joined this morning by Robin Wright, author of several books on the Middle East and a distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, also a contributing writer for The New Yorker, and her most recent piece is How Ten Middle East Conflicts Are Converging into One Big War. Welcome, Robin. Great to be with you. We're also joined by Firas Maksod, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Welcome, Firas. Thank you. Good to be here. 
Robin, let's start with Yemen. The U.S. has been ramping up bombing campaign of the Houthis this week. Just lay the groundwork for us. Who are the Houthis and how should we understand their movement? The Houthis emerged in the 1990s as a movement to revive culture and its minority religion. It is a branch of Shiism, not the same as in Iran, but yes, the same broader Shiite faith. Uh, They came increasingly into conflict, which peaked in the aftermath of the Arab Spring in 2011. The tensions grew to a point that a full-scale civil war broke out in 2014, and a year later, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates launched a campaign against the Houthis, making the civil war uh, a regional war. And now, of course, since the Gaza war erupted on October 7th, the Houthis have become involved by attacking international shipping, both military and commercial shipping, and even firing missiles at Israel. Its claim is that it is acting on behalf of its brethren among the Palestinians, and it's also acting against ships that are linked to Israel. The reality is that most of the ships, vast majority of the ships, have no connection to Israel, whether they're owned, flagged, operated by Israeli companies, and so forth. But what's happened is the regionalization of what had been a war that much of the world hadn't paid attention to inside Yemen. You know, there is a a, a long history in that particular part of the maritime world of hijackings and piracy, you know, Gulf of Aden leading into the Red Sea and Suez Canal is right there. Um, Is this a part of that history, do you think, or is it a distinct component? The war the Houthis have lost is a distinct component, even though it is a tactic, as you rightly point out, that has been practiced, um, you know, in various bodies of waters in that region. So it's not new in terms of what has happened, what uh, various militias have done. But it is in this case, it's much bigger. There's this these attacks now more than 30 by Houthis against both military and commercial ships in the Red Sea, uh, it has given the this ragtag militia in Yemen lopsided leverage over international commerce. And what we need to understand is that something like a 30, 30% of all shipments around the world end up going through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. To avoid that, ships have to add 10 days to their mm-hmm schedule and go all the way around um, southern uh, southern yeah. tip of Africa, back into the Atlantic and up back into the Mediterranean or beyond. So it's uh, the Red Sea is an incredibly important strategic waterway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people may remember back to when a ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, um, about what a big choke point the it really is in all of global commerce. Um, for us, I wanted to ask you about the U.S. response to what the Houthis have done. Is, is the U.S. achieving anything with those attacks? Early to say. I think what the U.S. has done is to try and degrade the military capabilities of the Houthis, really their ability to go after maritime shipping. As Robin said, some 30 percent. When you consider container traffic, I think the numbers are even higher. Um, maybe up to 80%. Uh, so this is this is truly a maritime choke point. 
And the regional kind of picture here that hasn't really been emphasized just yet, that the Houthis are of a proxy in many ways of Iran. So what's happening here is a, a broader regional showdown between, on one hand, the United States and its allies, and on the other hand, Iran, its proxies and allies in the region. Mm. The Biden administration had successfully reached a detente, kind of an unwritten understanding, if you may, with Iran back in May of last year. Um, the uh, director uh, at the National Security Advisor for the Middle East, Brett McGurk, in talks brokered by the Umanis, um, kind of reached a series of understandings, whether relating to nuclear enrichment, Iran's nuclear program, and the absence of the ability to go back to a broader nuclear understanding with the Iranians, but also an understanding that helped tamper down some of these regional conflicts in which Iran and the United States are involved. I think that's now come completely undone under the pressure of the war in Gaza. Yemen is one manifestation of that. Now, ultimately, whether the U.S. will be able to sort of degrade the capabilities of the Houthis is yet to be seen. But after much patience, after about three months of sort of sitting back and trying to get the Houthis to uh, to hold back on the attack against maritime shipping, I think the U.S. felt together with a small coalition of allies that, that it had to act. You know, Robin, the U.S. role in Yemen has been controversial for a very long time. Uh, part of the drone bombing campaign of the during the Obama administration. Can you kind of fill us in for people who haven't been paying attention to what the U.S. has been doing in this country that's you know directly south of, of Saudi Arabia? Well, the United States has been involved in a couple of very different things. It has launched drone and missile attacks to take out uh, members of terrorist groups that are operating in what's a kind of political vacuum or a military landscape. And that's quite separate from what it's doing against the Houthis. And separately, around Yemen, the United States Navy has been involved in interdicting Iranian ships or unflagged ships, dows, for example, that are shipping parts to uh, the, the Houthis, military parts. In one recent incident, the United States interdicted a dow. Again, these are pretty small ships mm -hmm. that, that was carrying missile parts. And the United States lost two SEALs who were swept into the Arabian Sea as they were trying to interdict this dow. So this is, you know, a complicated operation. Uh, the United States has interdicted quite a few ships that are ferrying weapons from Iran to the Houthis. Mm -hmm. On a humanitarian level, though, too, we're also talking about just really a remarkable crisis, a, a oh. famine that may have reached the scale of like even 20 million people. Tell us more about that. Oh, yes. It, uh, until Gaza, Yemen represented the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. Just stunning numbers. Um, the majority of the population relies on and we're talking about 23 million people, you know, half that population is dependent, more than half the population is dependent on foreign assistance uh, just to make it through the end of the day to eat and get water. Um, more than a million people had cholera. The economy has totally collapsed. Um, you know, this is a uh, huge numbers, hundreds of thousands have been displaced because of war. And it it really relies on humanitarian assistance just to exist. And the United States has actually been uh, very generous in providing humanitarian assistance. And even after it imposed 
new sanctions on the Houthis and designated it a um, terrorist group. They, there are two different categories. Um, the toughest one is foreign terrorist group. It went for the second highest category, which is speci specially designated terrorist group. Uh, and it had carve outs, as they call them, for humanitarian aid. So humanitarian aid can still go in. The one provision is that it also allowed 30 days for shipments en route to also be able to get there uh, before the the uh, mm. went into place. Is what's happening there, would you characterize it as a proxy war between the U.S. and Iran? Or do you see that as it's a lar this larger conflict is maybe a proxy war and individual pieces of it are not? Well, I mean, the Middle East is certainly a complicated place. And this is a multifaceted conflict, whether we're talking about Yemen or uh, Iraq Syria, that conflict also is one that's, that continues to simmer with the country divided into at least three, maybe four different areas of control. So th this is a part of the world where very local considerations very quickly feed into regional dynamics and then international interests and calculations. Mm -hmm. In the case of Yemen, uh, to be specific, We've certainly had uh, what is essentially a civil war raging, uh, particularly since the Arab uprisings, what many would call the Arab Spring of, of 2011, uh, where the Houthis were able to sweep into power uh, by, by force. And that then read, led to a regional intervention and an attempt to um, broker, a detente broker, and a peace agreement between the various Yemeni factors, which then fell apart and and led Saudi Arabia and a coalition of Arab countries to get involved directly in a war to push back in against what is viewed as Iran's proxy in Yemen. Mm -hmm. So it is a multi-layered conflict. There is certainly a local dynamic, but you cannot escape the regional and yeah. the U.S. interest in that part of the world. We're going to talk more about it. We're talking about the widening conflict in the Middle East with Firas Maksad, the senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, as well as Robin Wright, author of several books on the Middle East and a distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, got a new piece in The New Yorker, How 10 Middle East Conflicts Are Converging Into One Big War. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're learning about the widening conflict in the Middle East with Firaz Maksad, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, also joined by Robin Wright, 
author of books on the Middle East and a distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Also a contributing writer for The New Yorker and her most recent piece uh, inspired us to do the show, How Ten Middle East Conflicts Are Converging into One Big War. What questions do you have about the potential for a wider Middle East conflict or about particular components of, of this increasingly regional war, you can email forum at kqed.org. You can go on our social channels or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Um, Robin, let's talk about the escalating death toll in Gaza. More than 25,000 uh, Palestinians killed. Um, everyone agrees the majority of them are civilians. How has that changed public opinion in the region since October 7th? Well, I don't think there have been real polls, but there is obvious uh, discontent and an alarm among Arab countries about the death toll and the fact that the majority appear to be women and children. Um, the initial reaction to the atrocities carried out by Hamas on October 7th mobilized international and I think regional support for Israel. Uh, I mean, it was just shocking what happened. But since then, the response by Israel has not played well in the Middle East. And as we've seen on campuses and in protests in the United States and across Europe, it's it's changed public opinion uh, well beyond the Middle East as well. So, you know, the one question, of course, is what's happening among Israeli public opinion. And I talked to a pollster recently who said that after every war, Israel tends to turn further right. And during the last election, uh, about 48, 49 percent of the population voted for right or right wing parties. And that if there is another election held anytime soon, that that those numbers could increase to 60 to 64 percent. So whether or not Prime Minister Netanyahu continues to lead Israel, the public sentiment may support the kind of agenda that he has adopted both before and after October 7th. Hmm. Firas, can you talk about the peace plan for Gaza that at least reportedly the U.S., Egypt and uh, Qatar are reportedly pushing? I'm happy to, Alexis, but if you allow me very quickly to yeah. chime in also on, on the question you asked and what Robin just said, I think it's very important for all of us to remember where we were October 6th. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the Biden administration's very focused in terms of the Middle East on a normalization plan between Saudi Arabia on one hand and Israel on the other, a plan that could have opened the door really for many other Arab and Muslim countries to potentially normalize their relationship with uh, Israel, contingent, of course, on a forward movement on a two-state solution, essentially a state for the Palestinians. So it has to be kept in mind that the attack conducted by Hamas and perhaps maybe with some coordination with Iran, which is a key uh, sponsor of, of, of Hamas and, and the other groups, Hezbollah, very much had in mind torpedoing that effort at a broader peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And so, yes, to just emphasize what, what Robin said, public sentiment has very much soured in the Arab and Muslim world as a result of the very predictable Israeli response to uh, Hamas's uh, attack and, and slaughtering of Israeli civilians on October 7th. So one will only have to wonder whether this tit-for-tat was very much thought through 
in terms of um, the, re- the resulting sentiment amongst Arabs and how much more difficult this will make it to achieve mm-hmm. any kind of normalization between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Mm-hmm. Now, the Arabs, in coordination with the Biden administrations, have not given up. Uh, as you put, put forward, they have uh, suggested a new peace plan. It is continues to be predicated on the Palestinians getting uh, a pathway towards a state and addressing Palestinian grievances. It would have to start with a ceasefire uh, and then allowing the entry of uh, urgently needed humanitarian aid, but also reconstruction materials to the Palestinians. Uh, The Arabs are ready uh, to play a role, uh, shoulder their uh, responsibility in terms of creating some kind of a new arrangement in Gaza that would see uh, a, a reformed Palestinian authority uh, take power, uh, but also assume a role in the training of a new police force that would be able to govern Gaza. But for that to happen, uh, you need to start with a ceasefire. And as Robin very eloquently pointed out, the politics on the Israeli side are highly complex. The Israeli polity and public opinion at this point is is very much post-October 7th, uh, right of center. Uh, And so there's a lot that needs to happen on the Israeli side, including possibly early elections, for us to see any viable forward movement on these uh, Arab peace plans. Robin, if there isn't support among at least the Israeli administration for, you know, a two-state plan, then what is what are they saying? Okay, this is our day after plan. When this when this war ends, whenever that is, here's what's going to happen after that. Well, I don't think we have a clear idea of what the Israeli plan is. Just let me say, having covered every uh, peace attempt since 1978 as a journalist, um, in every previous peace plan, there's always been one party that was willing to embrace peace, and the other party that was under pressure to negotiate. Today, we're in a uniquely awful position in which no party wants, no party, direct party, wants to participate in a peace process. Both Hamas and Israel have issued existential challenges to their adversaries. Israel wants to eliminate, and they use the word even annihilate Hamas. Hamas manifesto has always called for uh, Israel to be erased from the map. And so the idea of finding compromise and the problem is the third party, the West Bank government, the Palestinian Authority government, uh, doesn't want to absorb Gaza, doesn't want to be responsible uh, at a time that, you know, 85 percent of the population has been displaced as of yesterday. Half the buildings have been destroyed, uh, that basically Gaza will have to be totally rebuilt. The West Bank's facing its own problems in terms of how much territory it has, how viable its government is. And that's why a broader two-state solution today is more difficult than it's ever been, not just because of the problem of who's going to negotiate on what terms, but just the physicality of it. So, uh, you know, there's there are indications that Israel wants to create buffer zones uh, around Gaza as it tried to do once in Lebanon and didn't work there. And I'm not sure it's going to work in little Gaza, which is the size of Philadelphia. Uh, And um, so that, 
you know, these cross-border raids can't happen again. Just very hard to see a solution to this. Whatever number of, of diplomatic trips are made by U.S. officials, however many warships are deployed in the region, however many words are expended, it's just very hard to see how we can move forward on peace and, more ominously, how we contain the different conflicts that are beginning to merge. Mm-hmm. Firas, let's, um, Robin mentioned Lebanon Let's talk a little about what's happening on Israel's northern border. If people have been following Gaza um, and they haven't been paying as much attention to what's happening between Israel and uh, Hezbollah there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about contagion and the possibility of of this war in Gaza now increasingly uh, metastasizing and spreading throughout the region, Lebanon is certainly a key contender to be a theater uh, for a next major war. Hezbollah in Lebanon, again, sponsored, trained, armed by Iran, perhaps Iran's most um, powerful uh, proxy in the Middle East. In fact, uh, widely considered the most powerful non-state actor in the world with over 100 plus thousand rockets and missiles aimed at Israel uh, and some 30,000 hardened fighters. Um, That would put the war in Gaza to shame should that war erupt. It's a much more for, formidable adversary towards Israel than Hamas ever is or will be. Uh, so there's a great deal of concern as we see these border skirmishes between Lebanon and Israel continue to grow. Hezbollah, uh, and together with the, their Iranian sponsors, have fired rockets at Israel from day one after Israel's uh, commenced operations in Gaza ostensibly in support of of Hamas and the Palestinian cause, a way of sort of showing solidarity, but brandishing their quote-unquote resistance credentials, their street cred, uh, if I may, amongst Arabs uh, and Muslims. But Iran and Hezbollah very much have an interest in keeping that conflict contained to the border. The status quo very much serves their interest. They want to harass the Israelis. They want to be seen as doing something on behalf of the Palestinians, force the Israelis to divert resources, personnel, over 100,000 troops away from Gaza. But they don't want to see themselves enter into a devastating war. Lebanon, after all, is suffering through a historic economic crisis, and Hezbollah's support base is, is not for a major war. The Israelis, however, have a different view, and uh, the Biden administration has now public record that on October 11, only four days after the war, had to very, uh, very much thwart the Israelis from launching a major operation in Lebanon. Mm. There's a great deal. Uh, there's 85,000 displaced Israelis from the north as a result of these border skirmishes, and there's concern in Israel that Hezbollah might do onto Israel's north what Hamas did in the south. One of the things that the Israelis have done is they assassinated a Hamas leader right in Beirut. Um, What did that do inside Lebanon um, for the the politics of this conflict? Yeah, I mean, that was in in many ways sort of a watershed or potential watershed moment because Hezbollah's secretary general, Hassan Nasrallah, had very clearly in an August speech uh, warned the Israelis that should any assassination be conducted on Lebanese territory, be it against against Hezbollah or otherwise, that there would be an immediate and fierce response from Lebanon. Um, that is sort of in keeping what, since the last major war, the 2006 
war between Hezbollah and Israel been called in terms of the rules of engagement, sort of the general way that Israel and Hezbollah go at it back and forth across that border. What was most interesting is that Hezbollah's reaction was relatively contained mm. as a result or uh, in the aftermath of that assassination. The danger there for Hezbollah was that it basically signaled to the Israelis that they can go ahead and conduct further targeted killings in Lebanon without much of a response. And that's exactly what we're currently seeing. And that's happened because Hezbollah and Iran are not interested in a major war in Lebanon at this point. Hmm. We're learning about the widening conflict in the Middle East with Firaz Maksad, who's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. We're also joined by Robin Wright, author of several books on the Middle East and a distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's a contributing writer for The New Yorker, and her most recent piece is How Ten Middle East Conflicts Are Converging Into One Big War. What questions do you have about some of the components of this potential wider war in the Middle East? You can email us at forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Robin, I do want to move to one other part of this conflict. Uh, Americans may not even be aware that we have military bases in Syria. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about what the -the on-the-ground situation is there and the kind of state of this long war? So the United States has 2,500 troops in Iraq and 900 troops in Syria, northeast Syria. And both of them are involved in helping the local forces the Iraqi government uh, in Iraq and the Syrian Democratic Forces in Syria contain the remnants of ISIS, which is still engaged in assassinations, bombings, and kidnappings, even though its caliphate collapsed in 2019. And this is one way the the different wars have converged. The pro-Iranian militias in Iraq and Syria have attacked the American forces in both countries more than 140 times since October 7th. And this is again to raise the kind of ante on what role American can play in pressuring Israel mm-hmm. to do less in Gaza. Um, now, but I, I, if I can just for a moment explain the kind of network that has evolved over mm-hmm. the last sure. 40 years out of Iran that when we talk about what influence and what Iran wants and what the different militias are doing, since the 1979 revolution in Iran, which will celebrate its anniversary next month, um, it has gone out and created a so-called axis of, e- of resistance network, where it has built Hezbollah from scratch in Lebanon since 1982, and it's now armed with 150,000 missiles and rockets all pointed at Israel. It's create, it has backed the Houthis as the Saudis helped the former government uh, in Yemen. The Iranians increasingly expanded their military assistance to the Houthis. It's also helped create the various militias that come under the rubric of the popular mobilization forces. These are dozens of different Shiite militias in Lebanon, some many of which have political parties who, who are in parliament as well. And they have been... Uh, very effective in whether it's challenging, and of course Hamas is part of that network, in challenging Israel um, 
as well as American forces still based in the region. All of them share a common strategic goal of getting the United States out of the region. The Americans in Iraq and Syria, the U.S. has been training Lebanese forces. Obviously, it's been strong in, in arming, whether it's Saudi Arabia and others in the Gulf and, um, and Israel as well. They want the U.S. out of the region altogether. But when it comes to what they want to achieve domestically in their own constituencies, it's very different. And so um, Iran has extraordinary influence because in some cases it created the groups, it's fully armed, trained, backed, um, helped direct, provide intelligence to all of these groups, but it isn't always the puppet master. As we saw with Hamas not informing Iran, and that's according to US and British intelligence and Israeli intelligence, did, Hamas did not inform Iran about what it was going to do on October 7th or when it was going to do it. And so many of these groups are now two generations old, carry out their own agendas um, and are battle hardened in their experience, are capable of converting and making their own weaponry. So they, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy. But the danger is that they are coming together because of their common strategic agenda in in their challenges of Israel and the United States and and Western allies. Yeah. Um, we are learning about this widening conflict in the Middle East with Robin Wright, who's wrote, written several books about the Middle East, a distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, contributing writer for The New Yorker and her most recent piece is How 10 Middle East Conflicts Are Converging into One Big War. You heard a big chunk of the of the theory there. Uh, Firaz Maksad also joins us, uh, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and adjunct professor at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. We would love to get your questions about these specific conflicts as we consider these larger regional powers and the U.S. role uh, in this region. The email address is forum at kqed.org. There are, of course, all of our social channels at KQED Forum or there on Twitter, Instagram, or you could go on our digital community uh, on Discord. You can also, of course, give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. We'll try to get to some more calls and comments. Uh, right after the break. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, Robin Wright. Uh, She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Most recent piece is How Ten Middle East Conflicts Are Converging Into One Big War. Also joined by Firas Maksad, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and adjunct professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Um, Firas, before the break, Robin was saying that there's a variety of different groups, many of whom are backed by Iran, who share a common strategic goal of the U.S. uh, leaving the region. Why shouldn't the U.S. get out? I imagine, actually, many of our listeners may want a less interventionist U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Great question. In fact, I was looking forward to this because I'm very sensitive to the fact that many of our listeners might not kind of be aware of the the details of U.S. involvement and the rationale uh, behind it. Listen, the Middle East is called the Middle East for a reason. It's, it sits right there in the middle at the crossroads of, of three continents. It, it, it contains the, the choke points, the three naval choke points, Bab el-Mendid, Hormuz, and the Suez Canal that are critical for the global economy. Uh, also critical to the global economy is, is uh, the oil and the energy. Uh, in in the Middle East, certainly in terms of great power competition as the United States seeks to establish its global dominance uh, given the rise of China and in many ways the return of Russia, uh, control over such a strategic part of the world is is central and the Chinese have been making significant inroads. And and so for all these reasons, the Middle East continues to be central. Now, in terms of that uh, conflict with Iran, this competition that we've been talking about, it's important to keep in mind that the central tenant, the ideology of the Islamic Republic in, in Iran, uh, America is the great Satan, uh, not Israel. Uh, and so in terms of Iranian strategic interests, which Robin had been discussing, it's sort of throwing, being able to eject the United States out of the Middle East is a central point of focus. Uh, and very much in terms of sponsoring these um, these proxies in Iraq and, and Syria is is part of what the Iranians are trying to do to establish their dominance, not only in, in the Gulf, but all the way out to the Mediterranean and now with the Houthis into the Red Sea. If you look at the map of the Middle East and Iran is allowed to establish its dominance across Iraq, Syria, Lebanon on the Mediterranean on the Israeli northern border and then to continue to have its relationship with the Houthis on the Red Sea, that is a major significant uh, geopolitical development for the Iranians. Uh, and I think it's very important to also recount Iran's involvement in Ukraine, providing drones and increasingly uh, uh, military cooperation and assistance with the Russians. So this is all mixed in in a, in a broader geopolitical uh, competition that the United States has with Russia and China, uh, and the Middle East is central to that. You know, Robin, I wanted to ask you, you know, as someone who's covered this for, for a long time, you know, I, I feel like one of the lessons that maybe many younger people took from the period after September 11th, you know, so-called war on terror, was that U.S. involvement in the Middle East um, doesn't work very well, <laughs> that it, it has uh, led to bad 
outcomes. Um, do you think that is a, a correct interpretation? Well, unfortunately, I was born before 9-11, so I'm not sure I can <laughs> speak for the, a younger generation. I've been covering the Middle East since the 1973 war. Um, uh, I, I do think that there, there are other issues as well. It's U.S. support for Israel that has been true since 1948 when Harry Truman was the first president to recognize Israel. Um, the U.S. foreign policy position has always been to support Israel. Um, besides the issues of oil. And the, the U.S. is actually increasingly oil independent, but the problem is our allies are not. And if you want to build a strong alliance with uh, not just Europe, but Japan and, uh, and countries in Southeast Asia or in, on the Indo-Pacific, um, the Middle East oil is still a very important dynamic. And so I think there are a lot of reasons the U.S. is been sucked back into a region, even after President Biden made clear he wanted to shift the focus to China. Um, But as you get into this whole global dimension, I think it's important to understand that, yes, the global balance of power is beginning to shift in part because of these tensions between Iran, the United States, and um, not just between the two countries, but between their kind of allies on the ground in the Middle East. And now you see um, Iran, Russia, and China becoming the kind of troika uh, Russia and Iran over weaponry, which Russia increasingly relies on, and uh, Russia—I mean, Iran—China because China is has helped keep Iran afloat um, on its oil pur- purchases, uh, which China badly needs. Uh, I think most Iranians always hoped that for the first four decades, Iran would get back to a point that it was had relations with the United States. It's a much more natural alliance. Um, but and that first step was the nuclear deal, which then kind of opened the way for talks on other issues. But when President Trump walked away from the deal, um, Iran began looking for other partners, believing that the United States was not the eventual main interlocutor. So, you know, this the what we're seeing play out in Israel, a country the size of New Jersey against Gaza, the, uh, an area the size of Philadelphia has really global repercussions. Yeah. Let's get to some uh, calls here. Uh, Kevin in San Jose, welcome to the show. Yes, um, I want you to know what the guest's opinion on the political strategy of Hamas regarding this, uh, starting this war was, knowing full well that Israel is was going to clamp down on them like uh, uh, squishing a bug. The irony is that uh, now that they have gained uh, sympathy for perhaps a solution, uh, this may very well turn out to be uh, completely in their favor. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, thanks. Firas, do you want to address that? Sure. I'm happy to take a crack at it. Listen, I I, I don't think that Hamas was oblivious to uh, the expected Israeli reaction. (laughs) And in many ways, I've argued that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel is, is playing or is fighting Hamas's war, playing into uh, playing it, uh, its own game. We've seen this before um, in the 90s when Israel and the Palestinian Authority under uh, U.S. auspices, President Clinton at the time, were very close to reaching a, a peace accords and reaching a deal. Hamas conducted a series of suicide attacks throughout Israel in order to try and undermine and disrupt that peace process. And so at a moment when um, the Biden administration was focused on normalization and trying to achieve a diplomatic breakthrough, 
that might lead eventually to the creation of a Palestinian state with Arab and Saudi support. Uh, I think that cannot be sort of discounted as being part of the rationale and the calculus as to why Hamas conducted that operation on October 7th. It certainly was very aware that the polarization of public opinion, both in Israel in terms of radicalizing public opinion and, and feeding into the anger of Israelis, but also Arab and Muslim public opinion, was going to make it very difficult for the Biden administration to achieve its goals in the region and for the Arabs to normalize with Israel. And it would only feed into further support for radicalization on the Arab and the Palestinian side, therefore reinforcing Hamas's support base. Um, Robin, I want to um, ask you a different question. A listener writes in to say, my brother is an Amman-based journalist currently in Ramallah reporting on the West Bank. I think an important conflict that gets alarmingly glossed over in the U.S. is the Israeli settler incursions into the West Bank. Per his reporting, they're armed with U.S.-supplied M16s and the IDF either stands idly or actively contributes to Palestinian oppression by rounding Palestinians into refugee camps, which are really about securing the populace against their will. It's unsafe for all Palestinians right now, including those with Israeli citizenship. And I think the question that that, that Jamie's raising is the repression inside Israel as part of this wider uh, war as well, just n- not even necessarily in Gaza. Well, the West Bank is, is its own issue. And one of the reasons that Israel didn't see the possibility of the Hamas attack, missed it altogether, both politically and militarily, is because it was so focused on the tensions in the West Bank and the threat to the Palestinian Authority government. And so both U.S. and Israeli intelligence was focused heavily on that. Uh, Since Gaza, there's been a deep concern in Israel that uh, sympathizers, Hamas sympathizers in the West Bank would get engaged in, whether it was protests or actions. And so Israel has less visibly uh, launched a crackdown across the West Bank, arrested many. There have been, I think, over 100 killed now, uh, um, especially young men. There have been some pictures of people rounded up, uh, young men rounded up, um, the tops of their clothing taken off, hauled off in trucks, a lot of arrests. Uh, And the danger is that there is more support for Hamas today in the West Bank than there was beforehand, because the West Bank is the one place that has been willing to negotiate, um, not successfully, but has been willing to consider negotiations with the Israeli state and to recognize the Israeli state. So we're at a real crunch point among the Palestinians uh, in general. And I think one of the things we also need to understand is that across the Middle East, there is a vacuum of ideas or an ideology that that is viable. Uh, The Arab Spring unleashed uh, waves of protests that brought down four dictators in 2011 and 2012. The problem was the young protesters didn't have the political alternatives, the resources, the parties, um, the sophistication or maturity to create alternatives. And as a result, there are the rise of even worse dictators. And so in the meantime, the only ism out there is Islam. And one of the things that is of concern to me is that there is vast support for Hamas, even among people who um, abhor the tactics, the atrocities that Hamas engaged in, but they are envious or admire the fact that Hamas has stood up to Israel and to U.S. influence. And so 
you know, we it, unfortunately the operation in Gaza uh, by the Hamas and against Hamas has exacerbated, complicated public opinion in ways that could that could last a very long time, long after the war. And Hamas has been willing to pay kind of extraordinary price because it thinks it could win politically. If it still exists as a political entity in the aftermath of a military war, then it will believe that it has won something important, if not everything. Um, want to return to uh, our, a topic that we had at the top of the show about trying to kind of fill in some of the history of Yemen and the wars that have uh, been fought there. You know, Noel on Discord writes, what I find disappointing about coverage regarding the Houthis is that lately there is hardly any mention of Saudi Arabia's devastating war against them for many years. No context to help us understand. All we hear is that they're attacking ships. Why? Leland uh, asks, is Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen for the past several years with U.S. weapons and intelligence distinct from the current news about Houthi pirates uh, in Yemen. And Firaz, I think I'll, I'll take this to you. Uh, obviously, it's not distinct, right? I mean, these are this, there is a, a continuity here, even with this sort of new element of uh, Houthi support for uh, Hamas. Yeah, the Saudi angle when it uh, comes to Yemen is, is very interesting. I, I actually happen to have grown up in Saudi Arabia, spent over a decade of my life there. So I've got some good window, uh, good insights into their thinking. Listen, the Saudis have to live with Yemen. It's sort of their soft underbelly. It's right there on their border. It's somewhere between 25 and 30 million impoverished Yemenis. Um, and in fact, there are many Yemenis that are well integrated into Saudi uh, society. Much of sort of the Saudi Arabian West Coast, the commercial hub in Jeddah, uh, much of these Saudis trace their roots back to Yemen. So it's a conundrum for them. It's a security dilemma of sort of how to handle this impoverished nation uh, on their doorstep. And it certainly raises alarm bells when the, when the Iranians are making inroads and building militias. In many ways, the Saudis see this as no different than the way that the Israelis see Hezbollah. Uh, really Iran implanting a militia on their doorstep. And therefore, in their view, the devastating war that they fought was an, a war of necessity. It was very poorly executed, no doubt, resulted in exacerbating many of the uh, hardship and, and the poverty in Yemen. But the Saudis are also the largest uh, humanitarian aid donor to Yemen for, for that reason. Now, the Saudis, when it comes to the current crises, are interestingly sitting back and, and taking a back seat to this. In many ways, they feel what's going on is a case of we told you so that the Iranians, if allowed, are going to use Yemen and the Houthis as a way of projecting influence against the United States, against the West, and leverage against the global economy. The Saudis have been engaged in a peace process with the Houthis now for the past two years. They are not interested in fighting that war again. They want to keep that border quiet. And so they're deferring to the United States and the UK and the coalition that's been formed to try and deal with the Houthi threat and really want to sit this one out. Yeah. Let's try and squeeze in one last caller here. Uh, Adam in San Francisco. Welcome. Yeah. Good morning. I'm really, really, really upset. I cannot believe in this 21st century we're living through the savagery, which only equaled to the Mongols destroying, 11, destroying most of the world, killing 11% of all the population. 60 million people were killed, 1260 AD, and eventually they will stop and defeated by Egypt. And I think that may happen again. This time, you know, Hitler killed 
about six million beautiful Jewish people. But this was done in the dark. Now, Israel doing the same thing, but right under all of these cameras, the biggest loser in not very long run is Israel itself. It's forfeiting its existence. One last thing. I will vote for Charles Manson before I ever vote for Biden. He had totally, totally destroyed his legacy, and he joined the, the hall of shame of war criminals, Kissinger and the list of them. I'm very, very upset. All this innocent, beautiful people had nothing to do with it at all. Hamas was criminal to do what they did. And also, I think Netanyahu was involved in that plot in October 7th. Thank you very much. All the good. Thank you for taking my call. Robin, uh, right, you know, I think uh, Adam expressing a lot of the anger and frustration that many people have been feeling over what, what is happening and how the Israeli military has responded to the October 7th attacks. Yeah, there are indications that particularly Arab Americans, Muslim Americans uh, are particularly distressed about what's happened in ways that could have some impact on the election. Uh, I cover Middle East wars. I don't cover American politics, so I don't step into it. But I think that, you know, he's not the first to express that kind of sentiment. Yeah. You know, other listeners have, have written in, you know, I'm concerned that millions of U.S. dollars are going towards bombing hospitals and children. Concerned that corporate media and this company are not reporting uh, the full truth. Um, I, you know, I guess I want to end here. If there, obviously there's a very narrow pathway towards some kind of peace. Um, Robin Wright, do you see, what would be the first thing we could look for? Just one thing, so we're coming to the end of the show here, that like might be an encouraging sign if they're, if they're what should we be looking for? Well, some kind of ceasefire and exchange of uh, release of hostages would be very important. I think it's going to be tough because the only leverage that Hamas has over Israel are the human beings, estimated to be about 130, that it holds as hostages. And in some cases in the past, Israel has held uh, held out five years for the release of one uh, Israeli and in exchange for the release of many, many Palestinian prisoners. So I think the terms will be complicated, and I'm not sure that there's a guarantee that if there is some kind of exchange, that that's going to end the conflict, given the fact that Israelis feel threatened and pledged to annihilate Hamas altogether if they can't get all the leadership, if they can't if they aren't guaranteed they have all the guns, that the war could continue. Uh, so we are in a very complex, delicate stage, and uh, we all hope that there's some kind of arrangement to release the hostages. Uh, will that happen? You know, I don't know. We've been talking about the widening conflict in the Middle East with Robin Wright, distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. We've also been joined by Firaz Maksad, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Thank you so much to you both and to all of our listeners and, and callers. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with me and Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.